You're listening to By The Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers with Fran Barber and Robin Whittaker. We continue in the season of Epiphany, this week being the fifth week, and we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 to 31, and Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. And we're going to start with Mark, Robin. We are, and it's the healing of um, Peter's mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And to give it just a tiny bit of context, you'll remember last week was the exorcism in the synagogue, and in a sense this is the pairing or a parallel with that story. So we've had an exorcism of a man in a public space. Now we have a healing that's also about a casting out of a fever, very similar language and movement mm-hmm. of a woman in a private or domestic space. Mm-hmm. Um both in Mark will lead to more healings and more exorcisms and a kind of setting that foundation for, you know, Mark's portrayal of Jesus as exorcist, healer and proclaimer of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's really important, isn't it, to have that um, overview sense because mm. in, in some respects these ten verses you might think, where am I going to preach? Like how does this all connect? Um you know, clearly, yeah. clearly, it's healings, but there's a much bigger thing going on here. And we talked last week too about the apocalyptic context, really, mm. or the apocalyptic stage on which um, Jesus is being depicted here, and the sort of sovereignty of God over everything, um, including evil, and here over illness. That's right. So the kingdom mm. of God coming near, which is that proclamation right back in verse fourteen, um, is now marked. That these are the signs of that for for Mark's gospel. Mm. Um, I also want to say in the, in the way that Mark structured it there, and, and the lectionary reading this week is a little patchy. We've all got like sort of vignettes of things. It's not I necessarily. I suppose that's a, what I was trying to indicate. Yeah. Where, where do you hold it all? Yeah. yeah, so you might want to pick a bit to focus on. But um, I kind of like that if we're attentive to the structure, not saying this would necessarily make it into the sermon because it's boring exegetical stuff, but the structure to me goes from kind of individual healings, mm. even though we don't get the names of either the woman or the man, but to very quickly multiple, there's something that moves from the particular to the universal yeah. that for me also mimics the kind of flow of the gospel. Yes, and the drama and the speed that is is Mark's gospel yeah. too. So exegetically, what struck you in um, this reading? What do we need to be attentive to? Um, I guess the first thing, which is a couple of verses into the set text, but that once Simon's mother-in-law um, uh, is healed, Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up, which mm. is the same wording that is used of Jesus on the cross. Yeah. So, again, it's Mark using key terminology to point towards um, the passion. <laughs> yeah, and I think last week you pointed out the cry in the temple, mm. the loud cry, again, is like Jesus on the cross. So we've got the cross shadowing really early on here. Yeah, another little reminder. Um, yep. And, look, also we will talk about how – so there was no um, – period of recovery for Simon's mother-in-law. She, the fever left her and she began to She's serve up. them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, and I think the word serve is something we, we do need to have a conversation about just in terms of certain hang-ups some of us might have about serving and the fact this is a woman, the first thing she does I is know. go and serve. It's a bit like cringy, But it's the diakonia where mm. we get the deacon word from, um, which in other parts of the gospel is translated as ministered. Yeah. And, and it has everything from a very – you know, everyday meaning of serving, like you put food on the table through to 
Um, in Mark, the angels diakoneo Jesus. They serve mm. him or they minister to him. At the foot of the cross, the women who, who watch in 1541, I think it is, are described as those who'd ministered to him on the way to Jerusalem. Using that same, same word. Yeah. And most notably, lest we think that this is some mere domestic act not worthy of recognition, um, Jesus himself in chapter 10 when he talks about the Son of Man came to not to be served but to serve mm. uses diakonia. Yeah. So um, I think, I mean, we're getting more into preaching themes already, but for me it's not to ignore that this is very much a domestic female act in its ancient setting, but we shouldn't therefore not give it um, the respect and honour that it mm. deserves. And I would hope just on a feminist political note that all that we've- um, We're never feminist or political, well, friend. Well, but actually <laughs> this this traditional woman's work or domestic work mm. has been shown to be crucial to the running of society oh, yeah. and worth thousands of dollars to the domestic economies of most nations. So we are not dismissing it. No. And just also the world would be a much better place if we did all serve each other. That's the end of my little sermon. <laughs> end of the rant today. No, I, so, I, I totally agree. And and if one was to preach on this, just to jump ahead, particularly on this few verses around the healing of um, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, you know, talking about acts of service and how varied they are, it, you know, it goes to that broader theme of just Christian life. We all mm. have our calling. We all have our gifts. And for some that is providing hospitality and that should not be seen as anything lesser than in fact, it is central to all the gospel stories. Yeah, this, and yeah. Jesus eats a lot with people. Exactly. So um, what else was there? Well, um, that evening at sunset, so we've yeah. got to remember this is all happening on the Sabbath um, day, well, the healing of the mother-in-law and the exorcism of the um, unclean mm -hmm. spirit was all on the Sabbath. Uh, we're being told in verse 32 that the Sabbath's officially ended now, aren't we? Yes, yeah, with sunset. the evening, yep. That's the um, end of the Sabbath day. Uh, so then they brought to him all who were sick and possessed with demons. So as you mentioned, this is the sort of hyperbole. This is where the masses turn up and you get this sense of just insuperable human need, this yes. wave of need that comes to Jesus. Um, the whole city in verse 33 at the door, which is probably hyperbole. For me, just as an aside, um, I had the privilege of a young, as a young theological student to go um, to Rome uh, and had some sort of audience with Pope John Paul. I'm not sure. They've got mm -hmm. different ways. That's why you're so holy things. now. Friend. Yeah, I know. Um, but I was just totally struck, and maybe, yes, as a Protestant, but that the people who the Pope blessed people who were unwell or mm -hmm. had ailments and just watching them stream across the and stage. And it is thousands that it come, was, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that it was extraordinary for me, you know. And in, in this, a making this come alive kind of thing. Yeah. The other thing about the evening of the Sabbath, and Joel Marcus talks about this in his Anchor Bible commentary on Mark, um, is that he talks about the tradition on, you know, when the Sabbath ends that night is you'd go and have a meal and uh, there's a sort of a service that we can trace back to the Second Temple period, so possibly around this time of a Havdalah service, which he said celebrates God as creator, link here to Isaiah 40, um, but also in some traditions was associated with um, in proclaiming God's creator power, associated with fighting demons and other magical powers. So just like that might be a little cultural thing we just don't get, mm. and yet that one verse about the evening at sundown 
if that was the typical Jewish practice in a home and then you've got Mark talking about casting out demons, it gives it uh, almost a liturgical mm. kind of um, significance. S- significance, yeah. 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 Um, the other thing to say, I guess if you look at the end of this reading in terms of other exegetical points, um, we've got a very strong word with them hunting out Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, yeah. So Jesus tries to find alone time. Um, and in verse 36, it is an unusual phrase but almost gives this haunting kind of Jesus can't get away from yeah. the need. Like it doesn't say they looked everywhere for him. No, <laughs> they hunted him. They hunted him. Um, so There's a desperation built into that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And that, And it also plays into that image of the human need that is everywhere. Yeah. And I think that's something to point out here um, just in terms of perhaps thinking as, as a Christian or as a, as a minister that you're there to serve everyone's needs. Oh, yeah. Um, Jesus doesn't hear and can't uh, and goes off actually remote for some, to, time out. for some time out. I know. I did think preachers uh, uh, might uh, resonate with those couple of verses about sometimes the pressing need of your congregation and community can be, you know, invade what feels like much-needed rest time Mm. Um, and it's not to ignore the need but the the balance. That's a whole other sermon probably. The last thing I'd comment is, again, with Mark, we've got to be attentive to these little settings. So even in verse 39 when Jesus now goes out throughout Galilee Mm. for what it becomes a regional ministry, um, he still uh, is going into synagogues. So, again, this you know, is portraying Jesus as, as you know, deeply embedded in Judaism. And teaching. Yep, mm. and teaching. So we've got the preaching and the teaching, which we'll tease out a bit more, go hand in hand here. Yeah, well, I was struck. Um, you know, we've seen this healing, the private and the public huge, mm. massive healing. And here, though, um, he said to them, let us go on to the neighbouring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, not so I may go and heal everyone there also. Mm. Um, and so I'm not, it's not an either or. Uh, it's the priority of proclamation that seems to be being put forward here. Yes. And, and as we saw um, in last week's reading, that proclamation or teaching, I think yep. you could almost, they're, in, you know, interchangeable yeah, almost perhaps. I think for Mark. That yeah. is healing. So the, proclam- <laughs> the proclamatory act Yep. Is itself or can itself be healing, and if it's done faithfully, um, is performative and effective. I agree entirely, and would only want to add that in Mark, it is then also always accompanied by deed. So mm. yes, the the I pre- suppose that's preaching what is I mean by the healing. That's yes. the deed that's done. Yes. Um. So so word and deed are not separable. Mm. Although I take your point, I think proclamation has the priority. Well, um, it's interesting here the way well, this maybe. is maybe yeah. the way this is um yep. put here. Yep. Something I and I was reading a commentary um in preparation for this conversation where um the writer suggested a modern analogy where you might have a minister with tremendous pastoral counseling gifts um who actually intentionally chooses to do that less and to take on a much more overtly teaching ministry in the mm-hmm. context and the sort of resentment that might bring up Ring. amongst the community. And it's not that they've stopped doing that um, pastoral counselling. It's that um, this proclamatory act comes first and is, you know, 
has priority. Has priority according to ha- perhaps according to what this text tells us here. And that can be a challenge in congregational life to 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 make sermon preparation a priority when there are endless pastoral and administrative demands mm. pushing in. Mm. Um, Fran, what would you preach out of this? What what themes emerge? Um, oh, lots of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that you have to pick one if you're a preacher this week. Um, and I remember last week we talked about, um, you know, what is the brokenness or the evil that um, in us, ourselves and in our communities that we need to be liberated from? Mm. In a sense, that's still the question for this part of this chapter, um, but here it's disease. Yep. Which is either disease or it's, oh, it's disease. Yes. <laughs> How, yeah, nice. However you put it. Um, in, we are in the season of epiphany, which, you know, is about the disclosure of God in the world and we've talked about how God's sovereignty is just cons- is portrayed in Mark to be um, ex- complete mm. um, but very personal here and touching on people's real lives. Yeah. Um, and that taps into the conversation in a moment around Isaiah, what, what, yeah. what, what the Isaiah passage says about God and the nature of this God unlike any other small g God. Yeah, I think if I was going to preach this week, um, I'd want to actually do something with putting Isaiah and Mark side by side about, you know, what is God like? And we'll mm. get to that in a moment. But if you were just going to preach on Mark, I mean, one one approach would be to pick up this diakonia and talk about service and mm. what, what is what is the service we do. Um, another approach would be to you know, think in our communities about how word and deed are going together and, and have we got that balance right at a time to sort of reflect on the, the ministries in your community mm. and, um, you know, how that balance is going. But if you were going to do an epiphany theme, I guess talking about, you know, who who Jesus is revealed to be here, um, you know, underneath all of these stories in Chapter 1 of Mark is is Jesus with the authority of an exorcist. And Jesus the Exorcist is not really that's our not a pun- go-to no, image. That'd be an interesting sermon title. You yeah, could- but uh, you know, which then requires you to do some, I think, quite careful theological work about well, what what would Jesus want us to exorcise from our lives mm. um, in terms of the things that disempower, inhibit, and how to make maybe how to rob what, life. Yeah, yeah, how to make the marginal. Not yeah. you know more central or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there'd be ways to play with that language of exorcising. Like we we do that in all sorts of ways and in negative ways. We sometimes have exorcised things from our lives that actually need to be central to our lives. In that we've got our priorities wrong, mm. and that, you know you could you could play around with some of that. Um, yeah. But mm. back with Isaiah in a moment. If you're enjoying By The Well, please take a moment to review us wherever you listen to podcasts. So Isaiah 40, 21 to 31. So we had Isaiah 40 in Advent 2. We did. I believe. It's a very long chapter full of many richnesses, which one could probably preach 10 different sermons on. Yeah. But we just have these 10 verses. So we're in 2nd Isaiah um, and... The context is the exile, isn't it, or just after the, well, the exile where people 
um, fail to, well, believe that God is not faithful and has left them bereft. Yeah, so possibly to people in Babylon or, you know, it's, it's that Babylonian exile. Mm. And it's a typical prophetic passage because the prophets are about speaking a word of hope into, um, to put it mildly, less than ideal circumstances. Mm. So, I'm, you know, again, I'm conscious there are many of you around the world who are still in, you know, terrible times with the COVID pandemic and the you know, there's an awful lot of richness in this Isaiah passage. Mm. It might actually feel like a more appropriate or relevant passage to preach at these times. Yes. I was just thinking, and this is going out of time here, but that this the COVID context and how dramatic it is still in some parts of the world makes mm. that Mark reading about healing also extremely poignant. It Yeah, it does, and and also probably gives us a bit of a pastoral mandate to talk about that very carefully, yes. which we, did, we didn't touch on. That, Like when we talk about miraculous healing and we might have people in our communities who have died and not been miraculously healed, you know, we're preaching to the choir here because you all know how hard this is, but mm. just being cautious with that. Yeah. Anyway, so, we're moving on to Isaiah. Interested that something I read suggests that the structure of this part of the of the chapter 40 here is a bit like Job 38 and onwards with disputation with the questions, um, have you not known, have you not heard in 21 and then to whom will you then compare me in 25? Yeah, it's got an element of Job to it, doesn't it? sort of, you know. um, Do you not understand? Can you comprehend? Yeah, can you comprehend? I want to almost go back to verse 18 because this section at least of the chapter and the chapters and verses are entirely arbitrary um, uh, in that they're added later. But to whom would you liken God and what likeness for him propose? And then it talks about is God like an idol? Is it God Mm. like someone you can forge out of silver? And, of course, you know, in antiquity it's not do you believe in God or not. Which is the modern question. Yeah, but it's like which which God because there are multiple gods. And and you must have an allegiance to something, have an allegiance to something. Yeah, And possibly in most cultures many, but the point Mm. that will emerge is God is not like these gods who are idols or who are. Um, taken from nature, animals or stars or suns. Um, and really it's a very expansive view of a creator. Like this is a grand vision of the divine. And it, it's, it is a, a powerful philosophical question too. If we can't, if God is not, big G God here, the Holy One, is not a category, is not part of the category God, small mm. g. <laughs> yep. Um, how do we talk about God? And the biblical answer is that God is known in God's words and deeds. Yeah. And then matching up. Yes. <laughs> um, which relates to what we were talking about in Mark as well. Mm. Keep about that. Jesus keeps coming ministry. back to Mark. <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing I'd noticed just in noticing some of the language here, um, with the idols and the craftsman language becomes relevant. So the, the bit that the lectionary's left out, because when we get to, you know, verse twenty two and twenty three and it talks about God planting and blowing and shaping and stretching like a tent, um, spreading the heavens like gauze. It's very kind of almost pragmatic, crafty language. Mm. So there, there's it's a flipping of like God is not something crafted. God is the craftsperson. Yeah, yeah. Those, <laughs> those verbs really stood out for me, stretches and spreads and um, brings princes to naught and makes the rules of the yeah. earth as nothing, you know. Um. It almost takes that Genesis 1 
image, which is all about God says and things happen and makes it a far more tangible mm. God kind of physically moving and, you know, in a hands-on kind of way. And intruding in the political processes to point out what's de- what's not legitimate. Yes. There is a striking, um, despite the grandiosity of these images that call us to have this sort of lofty, almost step-removed perspective, you know, the text does return to the personal and, again, depending on your context, it might be things like verse 29 and 30 that really are um, the core you want to go to. He gives vigour to the weary great power to the powerless. You know, there's an, a, despite this God having crafted the universe a few verses earlier, mm. there is attentiveness to those who are weary and powerless. And that's, I think, the prophetic word of comfort to the struggling in Babylon. And that part of faithfulness is waiting. Yeah. Is waiting for that fullness that just promised. It reminded me of, uh, sorry, do you have more exegetical points before I go well beyond? I don't think so, no. Okay, good. Um it reminded me of um, some things I read in Julia Baird's Phosphorescence book last year mm. where she talks about the overview effect, uh, which is quite well documented now, which is the perspective or the effect on astronauts who go up to space. Oh, yeah. And there's been several astronauts that talk about what it's like. Um, so there's a quote here from Jim Lovell. I realised, this is from being up in space on Apollo 8, I realised how insignificant we all are, as if everything I've ever known is behind my thumb. And then went on to talk about how that perspective of being so removed from the earth and seeing the earth so small from this different point of view actually only increased his awe and wonder and his sense of a great deal of empathy and care for what was on earth. So yeah. it's almost um, it's paradoxical. Paradoxical yeah. that that and and he's not the first astronaut to have talked about this. So she she talks in her book about the overview effect and this. It just reminded me of some of the language in, here in Isaiah forty that, on the one hand, there's part of me that goes, "How is talking about God as transcendent and up in heavens helpful for the struggling on earth?" But I think this text is inviting us to kind of, you know, enter into this much more just grand scheme of things and recognise that God's time and God's expanse um, holds us. But holds us. That yeah. in the grandeur there is comfort that that God is attentive to the the small and the, yeah. So I don't know if that's helpful, but I, we'll, we'll link to, there's a Guardian article with a lovely excerpt of the book oh, right. if people okay. want to read yeah. some of the quotes because I'm not really doing it justice, but I'll link to that article in the show notes. Mm. So I think if I was going to preach on Isaiah or, in fact, draw the two readings together, I'd want to do a kind of what is God like? And you could even use verse 21 as a lovely refrain throughout the sermon. Do you not know, have you not heard, you know, that God is like this, mm. that God does this, this is who, you know, go to the Jesus story, go to this Isaiah mm. language. Do you not know, have you not heard, this is what our God is like? And you could even intertwine that with some personal stories or things mm. from your local community. Yeah. What would you preach, Fran? Um, well, I'd. Struck by that verse 31 about those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Mm. Um, I'm drawn to it because what strikes me in the two readings today is the vast miraculous action of God mm. um, on on vulnerable humanity <laughs> who have disease or are ill. Um, and we're in a culture when we're resourced and in a Western world where we're formed to get on with a job and take action and find out what the plan is and what we should do about it, whatever the it is. Yeah. 
And this invitation here is that actually, no, it's faithful wait. to wait. And this wait is a wait that has hope within it. It's, mm. a, it's a faithful and hopeful waiting for a promised future that we can't bring ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you for listening, everybody. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College, the Uniting Church in Australia, and produced by Adrian Jackson. Mm-hmm.